Welcome to the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Today we continue with Chad Bird in his teaching sessions, which he delivered at Mount Carmel in the summer of 2022. All right, let's, uh, let's kind of wrap things up with regard to, to creation. Um, hopefully, in the time that we spend on it, you, uh, you got a, a pretty good grasp of where I would encourage you to go with it. Uh, I will say this is to kind of wrap things up. Very often what you'll see in, in other prophets like Hosea and like Ezekiel or like Jeremiah is they will take what Isaiah has done and they will, they will duplicate that, they'll expand on it, they'll take it a little bit, little bit different direction, but very often what they'll do is also tie it in with two different things. They'll tie it in with David. Uh, Ezekiel will talk about how a new David is going to come, and one of the results of this new David coming is the restoration of creation. And then we'll also tie it in with what we're going to shift gears and talk about now, and that is Exodus so that creation and exodus are understood to be two sides of the same theological coin. So that when God started off as creator in Genesis chapter 1, it's not as if when he finished Genesis chapter 2, he took off his creation hat, hung it up, and then after Genesis 3, put on his redemption hat and started becoming a redeemer. A redeemer is a recreator, basically. What's happening in redemption is that God is bringing about a restoration of creation. So you will often, in the Psalms, which we're going to look, we're going to look at an example right now, in the Psalms as in, and in the prophets, you will see a seamless weaving together of what we separate, or at least distinguish, as creation and redemption themes. The psalmist will put these side by side or weave them together into a composite. And I think one of the best examples of this is Psalm 136. So if you, if you have... Your Bible, just take a quick look at it. We're not going to read the whole thing. But just to give you an idea as to how this functions in the Psalms. Psalm 136 is, uh, is the one that's well known because it has the refrain uh, throughout, the, throughout the Psalm, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Ki la'ulam chasto. Ki la'ulam chasto. For his loving kindness is, is chesed. His, his love, his mercy, however you want to translate that word, is everlasting. But notice... How this, how this is structured. We start out, Psalm 136, giving thanks to the God of gods, the Lord of lords, to the one who does great wonders, to him who made, verse 5, the heavens with skill, to him who spread out the earth above the waters. Verse 7, 8, and 9 continue this creation theme. To him who made the great lights, the sun to rule by day, the moon and stars to rule by night, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And without taking a breath... Without, without any kind of an intervening segue between talking about how God makes all things, sun, moon, and stars, we hear, to him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn. Whoa, that's a, that's a big jump, isn't it? We go all the way from Genesis 1 to the book of Exodus. And then he goes on, brought Israel out from their midst. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, he divides the Red Sea, and then it goes on and tells the rest of the story, not just about the Exodus, but about him bringing them all the way through the wilderness, and they strike Sihon, king of the Amorites, all king of Bashan, and he gave their land as a heritage. So we go all the way in these verses from Exodus while they're in Egypt, 
through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. In those three verses, he summarizes biblical history. But then he's not done. Verse 22. Verse 21, he gives their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. Verse 23, who remembered us in our lowest state, has rescued us from our adversaries, who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. So what has he done? He starts out talking about God making the heavens with skill and the earth and the sun, the moon, and stars. He talks about all things celestial and terrestrial, and then he goes right into God smiting the Egyptians, bringing Israel out, leading them through the wilderness, bringing them into the promised land, and then he wraps up with what? Who gives food to all flesh. Kila olam hasto. He's told creation, and then he's told redemption, and then he's retold creation, and he's compressed it into this one psalm. So for, so for the psalmist, this is, there, there's no great, as it were, jarring transition between verse 9 and 10 from creation to the Exodus. This is just all part of one, one story. And I think what I love most about Psalm 136, so this is obviously a poetic retelling of Genesis through Joshua, right? I think we'd all agree on that. This is kind of the basic historical framework of Genesis through, through Joshua. And what does the refrain, how does the refrain function in the psalm? It functions as the, in, the repeated interpretive lens through which we can review all of these acts. So why did God create the heavens and the earth? Because His love and kindness is everlasting. Why did He create the, the sun, moon, and stars? Because His love and kindness is everlasting. Why did He redeem Israel? Because his loving kindness is everlasting. Why does he give food to all flesh? Because his loving kindness is everlasting. So, if you were asked to summarize, really, what is the Torah and Joshua all about? Well, there's your answer. Oh, it's, it's about how God's loving kindness is everlasting. That's it. The psalmist has given us the key to unlock what all these stories are all about. They're about how God's hesed, his loving kindness, never ceases. So this, this psalm is just a fantastic way for us to view all these, these stories, which certainly are filled with all sorts of different themes, no doubt about that, but the psalmist gives us the way in which we can approach Genesis through Joshua. This is about God's love, and it's never-ending love, his never-ending love for us. Okay, so Psalm 136, great example of how you have this bringing together of twin themes of, of creation and redemption, kind of melding them into, into one. And with that, we will uh, at least partially shift gears to talk about the Exodus, in particular to talk about exiles and returns. Of course, when you, when, you, when you say the word Exodus, almost everybody immediately thinks in terms of capital E Exodus, right? And understandably so, and rightly so. That is kind of the, the big Old Testament exodus. But it is by no means the only exodus in, in the Old Testament, if we, if we think in terms of exodus being exile. So just help me out here. Think in terms of the entire Old Testament story, and let me know what comes to mind when you think of exiles, 
not just kind of big national exiles, but any time that somebody has to leave the country, somebody, anytime somebody's exiled. So what comes to mind? Esther, Esther she's in exile. Yep. There you go. Good. Adam and Eve, okay. Adam and Eve are exiled from? Garden of Eden, okay. Abram, okay. We talked about that yesterday or day before, how this was uh, the, uh, the pattern that, that Abram and Sarai set for their descendants. So actually, you kind of have a couple of exiles, right? You have them, they're exiled. God exiles them from where they had called home. So he says, lek laka in Hebrew, get yourself going. Get out of where you're at, and I want you to go to this other place. And then they get there, and there's a famine, so they go someplace else, and they have to get out of there too. So kind of a double exile going on there. We have Esther, we have Adam and Eve, we have uh, Abram and Sarai, we have have Elijah. Elijah goes on the Transjordan before he is taken up in in the chariot. Ruth and Naomi, even though they left willingly with the famine? Ruth and Naomi, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, not Ruth so much, but Naomi, yes. So Naomi had to go into the, had to go outside, ironically, outside of the house of bread, the house of food, which is what Bethlehem means. She had to go into the, into the land of Moab. And then she returns. And I guess you could say that Ruth herself had to leave her home. Yeah, initially, and then she comes to, to live in Bethlehem. Jacob. Jacob, uh, I guess. I don't know if that's a forced exile or not. If you want to live, if you don't want your brother to kill you, you better leave. So it certainly is, a, is an exile. In fact, in just a second, we'll look at a verse that joins together Jacob's exile with Israel's exile in the book of Hosea. Who else? We're not, we're not done yet. Joseph. Joseph goes in exile in Egypt. He's the, the tip of the spear, if you will. He goes down there first. Later, everybody else joins him. Moses, what I could, you could say that, that Moses kind of does a, a, a double exile. He's born in exile, for sure. But then after, at the age of 40, he kills the Egyptian guard. Then he, kind of like Jacob, knows he has, to, he has to get out of Dodge. So he runs off to the wilderness and marries Zipporah. And he doesn't really, he sort of doesn't complete his exile, right? Because he dies outside, outside the promised land. Who else? Anybody else? Daniel was born in exile, taken into exile. Yes, yes. Hagar. Hagar was sort of exiled. We, we know that she was an Egyptian. We don't know exactly how she ended up with, with, with Abram and Sarai. So she was kind of taken out of her country, but then she was forced out too, right? She, uh, kind of, she ran away on her own once, and then she was forced to leave a second time. So she was exiled from the, the family that had made her their servant. David. That was one I've been waiting for. David certainly experiences an exile uh, in the Judean wilderness because he's being pursued. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? David could have, David could have said. So, jo- Jonah, you see? Yes, Jonah. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not dogmatic about this exegesis, but I think that what's happening in the case of Jonah is it's not just, it's more than just about an individual Jonah in some way kind of personifies the nation of Israel. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the seas and sea monsters are, are symbols of the Gentile world, actually of chaos. 
And what happens to Jonah? Well, he gets thrown into this chaos, and then he's swallowed by a sea monster, which in other prophetic texts symbolizes Gentile rulers. And then he, after three days, three nights, he gets expelled back onto dry land. Kind of, if you wish, it becomes at least nothing, if nothing more, kind of a symbol of what happens to his people. They're swallowed up. And then after a time, they're swallowed up by a Gentile world. And then after a while, they are spit back out and they're once more on dry land. It depends on which time we're talking about. Yeah, because uh, just like today, you know, we, have, we go through various world powers. Uh, and the ancient world was certainly like that. If you just look at, for instance, the, uh, the, the few centuries leading up to the birth of Christ, you go from the Assyrians being the dominant world power. They're replaced by the Babylonians, who are replaced by the Persians, who are replaced by the Greeks, who are replaced by the Romans. So you go through these various phases uh, where you have different world powers. And the Egyptians certainly were, at least for a long time, a dominant world power, at least in that part, that part of the world. Yes, yeah. Uh, so the main point here is that when we think about exiles, we're not thinking just about the book of Exodus and the exile in Egypt. We're thinking about something which becomes a, a pattern that is well-established, used by God, to some extent predictable, although there are differences between these various exiles, yeah, but to some extent predictable, so much so that, to use that Hebrew phrase I used yesterday, ma'aseavot simon lamanim, the deeds of the fathers are a sign for the sons. What happens to the patriarchs and becomes a sign for what's going to happen in the future. So, uh, let's see how this, how this works in the Old Testament. And also see how this bleeds over into, into the New Testament. And let's begin with um, Isaiah again. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 11. There's a reason that, who, who called Isaiah the fifth evangelist? Anyone know who, who first said that? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good way to describe who he is. Really, he's the first evangelist, but okay, we'll, we'll call him the fifth. Temporarily, he's the first evangelist. Okay, all of Isaiah 11 is significant. Uh, we'll, we'll see if we want to actually talk about all of it or not. But the main point I want to make here is what Isaiah does in chapter 11 is kind of the same thing he did in Isaiah 2. There he took some images from Genesis to preach the gospel. Here he's also going to take some images from Genesis to preach the gospel. But when he does that, he also brings in the historic, historic occurrences of Israel's bondage in Egypt and then their conquest of the promised land. And he... he he reconfigures these to where they become types or patterns of a cosmopolitan exodus that's going to happen in the Messianic kingdom. To where you look at what God did for Israel and he brought them out of Egypt, and that seems like a small thing compared to what God has in store for the rest of the world. So let's begin with the beginning of the chapter. Here is where we understand what he's talking about in the rest. He says, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So how many spirits were just mentioned? Anybody counting? Mm -mm. Well, what else would it be? Seven, of course. It's a good biblical number, right? So the spirit of the Lord, that's number one. And the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. Not that there are seven individual spirits, but this is the way that the Old Testament talks about the completeness, the totality of who the Spirit of God is. The reason I want to accent that is because when you read in Revelation about the seven spirits of God before the throne, these aren't seven Holy Spirits. This is, talking, this is using the language of Isaiah 11 about the complete Holy Spirit, the, the, the Spirit who gives us perfection and completion. So, you have the Spirit resting upon who? What does verse 1 tell us? Who is he? He's a new David. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse, David's father. So we're talking about the new David. We're talking about the son of David. We're talking about the Messiah. The spirit is going to rest on him, the sevenfold perfect spirit. And then verse 3 and 4 begins to talk about what he's going to do. He's going to delight in the fear of the Lord, not judge by what his eyes see. He's going to decide with righteousness and fairness. He's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's Psalm 2 language. And uh, uses the image of, of armor, like the belt in his loins, the belt around, or, or of clothing belt around his waist. So that's how Isaiah starts out. He wants us to understand that we're talking about the Davidic Messiah. The Spirit is going to rest on him. That's, that's baptism language from the Gospels, right? When the Spirit descends on Jesus. What happens in verses 6 through 9? This is a good little review for what we talked about the first hour. What happens in verses 6 through 9? The wolf will dwell with the lamb. Leopard lays down with the kid. The calf and the young lion, the fatling together. A little boy leads them. Cows and bears are grazing together. Verse 8 always kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. A nursing child playing by the hold of the cobra. How many of you moms would be comfortable with Somebody saying, this cobra is domesticated. <laughs> it's very nice. We've had it since it was a little one. You can put your child by the cobra. It will not bother your child. I promise. <laughs> that was one of the most arresting images in all the Bible. A nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. Now, if you are ready to put your baby down by... A cobra, you know that creation is changed, is perfect. If a mom is fine with watching her child play with a cobra, then you know that everything has been redone. So, and that's what this is talking about, right? It goes on to say, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, because the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's Isaiah repeating what he said in chapter 2. Except this time he's elaborating on it even more. He's saying that mountain of the house of the Lord establishes the chief of the mountains. That mountain is going to be where there is peace and harmony among humanity and animals. This is, a, of course, an Eden kind of language. And who's going to bring this about? The one talked about in verse 1. 
the Davidic Messiah, the one who has the Spirit of God. He's going to bring about this Eden-like restoration of creation. Humanity and the animal world join together peacefully. How's he going to do this? Verse 10 says, It will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. Wait. I thought he was the stem of Jesse. Which is he? Is he the root or the stem of Jesse? Both. <laughs> How can you be the root of Jesse and the stem of Jesse? How can you like be the source root of Jesse and then also come from Jesse? The Lord said to my Lord. Yeah. Well, if, if, if you're divine and human, then that's how. I mean, Isaiah 11 is t- teaching us about the two natures of Christ. It's, it's, just, it's right here. He's the root and the stem of Jesse. He's the source from which Jesse comes, but he also comes from Jesse. So he's, uh, he's, he's man and he's God. He's the, uh, the God-man, the Anthropos. So uh, nations will, uh, will resort to him. He will stand as a signal for the peoples. His resting place will be glorious. Okay, all of that now takes us to verse 11. And verse 11 through verse 16 is where, just like we looked at yesterday, Isaiah was in his study and he's like, what am I going to preach on? And what did he decide he's going to preach on? He's going to preach on Gideon in the book of Judges. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to preach on that character from Judges 6 through 8, Gideon. I'm going to compare his story of what's going to happen to the Messiah. Well, one day, Isaiah was also thinking, hmm, what am I going to preach on this Sabbath? I think I'm going to preach on Exodus and the book of Joshua. And I'm going to use those to talk about the Messianic kingdom. And that's exactly what he does here. Verse 11, it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time. With his hand. Well, that's the clue there. Because if somebody says, I'm going to do something a second time, the first question you need to ask yourself is, what was the first time? If it's the second time, what's the first time? Well, the first time is the book of Exodus, when God recovered his people from Egypt. But he's going to do something a second time. And we hear that this second time is, is going to be so much more glorious than the first time. He's going to recover the remnant of his people who remain from where? All over the place. From Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, Minnesota, Texas, and from the islands of the sea. So this is no longer God just saying, you know what, my people are captive in the land of Egypt. I need to, I need to send somebody down there to recover them. This is God saying, i got people scattered all over the world. I'm going to recover them. I'm going to bring them back to myself. How's he going to do that? Well, he's going to lift up a standard among the nations. He's going to assemble the banished ones of Israel, gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That's the cosmopolitan nature of this exodus. So, God's bringing everybody in, but what's going to happen in verse 13? The jealousy of Ephraim will depart. Those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim won't be jealous of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. So, when the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel were split after the death of Solomon, the southern kingdom was called Judah, the northern kingdom was often referred to as Ephraim, and there was often civil war between these two. 
There was antagonism. There was jealousy. So Isaiah is saying that's going to end. No more civil war among the people of God. No more harassing and jealousy between these two. In other words, he's going to provide unity. Verse 14, they will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. The Philistines lived, of course, along the coast on the west side of Israel. And together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab, and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. Now, I love this. Because this is, this is the language of conquest, right? They're going to swoop down on the Philistines. They're going to take possession of these cities to the east. They're, they're conquering peoples around them. During, during this cosmopolitan exodus that comes in the Messiah. You know what? What verse is that? You know what verse 14 is describing? The book of Acts. And the ongoing mission of the church. We, when we engage in mission work or evangelism... Really what we're doing is we are, we are conquering peoples. It's, it, evangelism, mission work, preaching of the gospel is, is a conquest of peoples. We're, we are bringing them into the kingdom of the Messiah. And what Isaiah is using is the, the military language from the book of Joshua to describe what is going to happen during the, the work of the church. Because, you know, when you think about it, Missions and evangelism is um, it's, it's a beautiful work, but every time that you bring somebody into the church or into the kingdom, there's, there's, a, there's a necessary thing that must happen. They've got to die. They've got to be killed. That's, that's what happens in the waters of baptism. When somebody's brought into, into the kingdom, when they, when they are conquered by the gospel, they've got to die. They've got to drown. That's precisely what happens every time somebody's baptized. Baptism is death and resurrection. You're joined to the death of Christ. You're drowned in the waters of baptism, and then God raises you. You are co-crucified, co-buried, co-raised with, with Jesus. So Isaiah is describing a conquest. It's really what's happening in the book of Acts and still happens in the church today. And then he goes on in 15 and 16 to once more use the language of the, the Exodus. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. He will wave his hand over the river, that is the river Euphrates. With his scorching wind, he will strike it and into seven streams, and men will walk over dry shod. So just like he split the Red Sea, so he's going to destroy the Red Sea. He's going to destroy the Euphrates. These are two different directions, of course. One's in Egypt, one's, in, one's closer to Babylon, Assyria. And then, verse 16, there's going to be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left. And notice the way he ends. Just as it was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. Just in case you missed the parallel. <laughs> like, Isaiah wants to make sure, hey guys, I've been kind of alluding to the book of Exodus through the sermon, just in case you didn't get it just like there was when God brought his people out of the land of Egypt. So what has Isaiah done? Isaiah, just like in chapter 2, this is a little bit longer, but he has compressed so much here. He takes us back to the books of, of 1 and 2 Samuel when he talks about the root in the stem of Jesse, because he's talking about David. In 2 Samuel 7, the promise to David of this, this dynasty and this ruler. So he's taken us there. 
But then he says, uh, so great, let's turn from Samuel back to the book of Genesis. And then he uses the language of animals and, and humanity. Now they're living in, in, in peaceful harmony. He says, okay, now let's go to the book of Exodus. And he starts talking about that. And then he says, now turn to the book of Joshua and let's talk about the conquest. He talks about that. And then he pulls it all together into this composite picture of what the Messianic kingdom is going to be like. Is it a place of new creation? Absolutely. Is it a result of God bringing about this worldwide exodus? Absolutely. And as a result of this worldwide exodus, is there also the inclusion of more and more peoples into this, this growing kingdom? Absolutely. So in 16 verses, Isaiah has summarized Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts into this one multifaceted portrait of what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. This, again, is not only beautifully comforting for us who are brought out of our exiles of darkness and death and into the kingdom of life and light in Jesus Christ. It's, it's pure gospel for us because we're those who have been scattered all over the place and who now are brought into this body of Christ, this kingdom of peace and hope and harmony. But it's also at the same time so instructive for us who are both readers and teachers and preachers of the Scriptures. I mean, what a way to preach. What a way to teach the Bible. So you, can't, you cannot teach the book of Exodus without using that to talk about what happens in this messianic return from exile that Isaiah is talking about. You can't talk about the book of Genesis without talking about the recreation that we have in Jesus. Nor can you talk about that favorite book of the atheist, Joshua, without also talking about the book of Acts and the ongoing mission of, mission of the church. So Isaiah is preaching the gospel to us, and he's also giving us a hermeneutics textbook. <laughs> he's also saying, this is a great way to read the Bible as a Christian. This is how you read these stories, always asking yourself, hmm, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with Jesus? Well, Isaiah, Isaiah gives us a model by which we can use these scriptures to, to do that. All right? Not just him, though. Let's see, where do we want to go next? i got so many possibilities here. Uh, oh, I know where we want to go. Okay. Hosea. We'll leave Isaiah for a minute. Uh, we don't want to tire him out. He's given us a lot. Let's go to Hosea, most happily married of the prophets. Oh, that's based on a novel, right? Yes. Oh, sorry, I just throw away line. So, um, yeah, it, it, the real, uh, what should I call them? The missional atheist <laughs> was the ones who really make it their mission to, uh, to, to spread their anti-gospel. Uh, they like to go to the book of Joshua and use it to describe how the, the, the God of the Old Testament is just this terrible, bloodthirsty, merciless deity. So if there's one, I think if there's one book that, that those kind of atheists really know, it's Joshua. Yeah. And, and, there's a, and admittedly, there's, there's there's plenty of things to give us pause about the book of Joshua. I'm not trying to downplay that. Uh, but I do think there's ways that we can 
interpret that. That's conformity not only with orthodoxy, but also uh, within the, the long interpretive tradition of the church. But anyway, that's, that's what I meant. Yeah, they, they love to, to go to Joshua when they, uh, when they attack us. Okay, uh, Hosea. Hosea, uh, is, uh, of course, I was being tongue-in-cheek about him being happily married. He was married to, to Gomer, um, who was a prostitute. Hosea and Gomer's marriage being iconic of Christ's marriage to his, to his bride, who uh, on their honeymoon decided that she would jump into bed with a golden calf. <laughs> so right away, you know, they're not three or four days into the honeymoon, and he's like, where's my wife? Oh, she's in bed with another god. And this infidelity then just continues, of course, throughout the rest of Israel's history. So Gomer, as a prostitute, becomes emblematic of Israel. And that's why God says he wants the prophet to marry her, so that their marriage becomes a picture of his fidelity, his commitment to monogamy, and then his people's infidelity and their ongoing tryst with Baal and Asherah and all the other gods. But chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, shows us how God is able to use Hosea in, uh, in, in a gospel sort of way. So beginning at verse 14, God says, <clears throat> Therefore behold, I will patah her. Ooh, it's a, it's a racy term. So in Hebrew, uh, what, what do your translations have? I have, NASB has allure. Persuade. Persuade, Persuade. oh, that's too vanilla. Sorry. Did you say seduce? Who said seduce? Oh, is that in your translation or did you just know? Oh, he just made it up. <laughs> well, you, you, you made it up correctly. It is. So, pata is really, it's a word for seduce. I mean, it's, it's a pretty racy kind of word that's used here. God says, I will seduce her. Now, this is a positive kind of dude, thinking like, okay, you take a guy uh, who is just, he's willing to do just about anything to get his girl back. I mean, he loves her, and he will bend over backwards. He'll do anything in order to, to, to win her back. That's the kind of seducing that's going on here. So this is a legit seducing, all right? I will allure her. I will seduce her. I will persuade with all my heart, body, and soul, we might say, if you want to use persuade. And how's he going to do this? He's going to bring her back into the wilderness. And the Hebrew has literally, I will speak to her heart. Speak kindly to her is the way New American Standard kind of milk toast translates that. Uh, so he's going to seduce her, bring her out to the wilderness, speak to her heart. Why the wilderness? Why would God bring his bride back in the wilderness? That's a strange place to have a romantic getaway. Because that's where it all started, right? That's where the honeymoon was. They didn't go to Niagara Falls. They went to, uh, to Mount Sinai. They went to the wilderness. So he's bringing her back to the wilderness. He's, let's start all over. Let's go back to the wilderness. And then, but he's not going to keep her there. Verse 15 says, I will give her her vineyards from there. And the valley of Ahor, which we'll come back to, as a doorway of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. I'm going to stop there for a second. This is a, another great example of how if you don't know 
the Bible movie, you're going to miss the quote. All right? So, the valley of Achor or the valley of Achor as a doorway of hope. Now, you hear that, and what jumps into your mind? Nothing. That's great. Thanks. For... It says the valley of trouble? Oh. Acorn means trouble. Okay, good, good, good. Well, it gave you the, gave you the definition anyway. So, uh, if Isaiah was sitting around thinking, what am I going to preach? And he comes up with Gideon one day, he comes up with Exodus one day. Hosea's sitting around thinking, what am I going to preach? And he's, he's, he, uh, he, he comes up with a rather odd text to preach on. He's going to preach on one of the saddest episodes that happens in the book of Joshua. It's early in their history. So they march around the city of Jericho seven times. The seventh day, they march around it seven times. And then they all shout. They blow their shofars. And the walls come tumbling down. One of my favorite stories when I was a kid. Uh, and, which I don't know why, but it was one of my favorite stories. The walls of Jericho come tumbling down. Wasn't there a song? Yeah, okay. All right. That's probably why. It's probably a few of them. That's probably why I liked it so much. Well, when they go in, they, they have one instruction, what they're not supposed to do, right? What are they not supposed to do? Not supposed to take anything. Yeah, not everything is, is, is belongs to the Lord. But there's one guy, one soldier, and nobody's looking. He sees this, you know, pretty cool stuff that's worth a lot of money. And so he picks it up, you know, puts it in his backpack, continues with the battle, gets home, hides it under his tent, thinks he's gotten away with it. The next battle comes up. They go against this tiny city of Ai, A-I. And the, the spies are like, we don't need the whole army. Just send a few guys. They can take out this city. Well, those few guys get their butts kicked. And they come back. And Joshua, and this is one of the few scenes where you can say the Lord is kind of frustrated with Joshua. Joshua's like moaning and groaning and lamenting. Oh, God, why have you abandoned us? And God basically like, shut up. Stand up. Here's a problem. Somebody took something they weren't supposed to. And Joshua starts uh, kind of whittling things down by the casting of lots, right? And he narrows it down, tribe, clan, family, individual, and the individual that the lot falls to is a guy named Achan. Remember this story? Achan actually admits what he did, and uh, the, the penalty that is meted out upon him is, is death by stoning. Now, it's where this happens that's significant. He Joshua says to him, why have you acorned us? Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you. He's stoned. There's a big pile of stones on him. And this is in the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. So right when Israel enters into the promised land, they run right up against disobedience and death and sin. And so... When a father takes his son by the valley of Achor, the son says to his father, Dad, why is this place called this? And dad's like, eh, well, let me tell you a sad story. And he tells him the story that I just told you. Well, Hosea says, you know what? When the Messiah comes, that's going to change. He's going to take his bride back into the wilderness. He's going to seduce her. He's going to speak to her heart. He's going to try and win her back. And then when he brings her in, there's going to be a transformation. And the valley of trouble, the valley of Achor, is no longer going to be the valley of trouble. Because things aren't going to be they were the way they were the first time. Because when Yahweh brings his bride into the true promised land, 
when the kingdom comes, the valley of Achor will be transformed into a doorway of hope. There's also another cool little Hebrew thing going on here as well. Because who was the, the woman associated with the conquest of, of Jericho? Rahab. Rahab, uh, just like the, the wife of Hosea, was, was a prostitute. Interestingly, that's where the two Israelite spies ended up when they came into the city of Jericho. Probably had good food there. <laughs> so that's where they are. Rahab helps them out. And then uh, she's saved when the city of Jericho is, is conquered by doing what? She puts a cord, right? Remember that? Yeah, red cord. The, word, the Hebrew word for cord is tikvah, which is the same word for hope. Well, not the same word, but they're, uh, uh, what, what, is it, what do you call that when two words are written exactly the same but have different meanings? Homophone, thank you. The homophones in Hebrew. So tikvah means cord, but tikvah also means hope. So Hosea is also kind of playing off of that because, of course, Rahab is an integral part of the, the, the Jericho story. So the, the Valley of Achor becomes a, a doorway of tikvah, a doorway of hope. And he goes on to describe in, in more terms about how there's going to be uh, a removal of Baal. And, and verse 18 describes once more kind of a restoration of creation and God betrothing his bride to him in faithfulness and he does the same thing the other prophets do. He draws from the stories that came before, and then he demonstrates how they apply to the Messiah, and then he weaves in the language of new creation to describe the kingdom that we have in, in Christ. And unfortunately, we are... We, time for one question, maybe? And then we will have to pick things up uh, tomorrow because we're at 11.53 at this point. Anybody have a question they want to ask? I think everybody maybe is ready for lunch. Is that right? Okay, good. We're done. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the Mount Carmel podcast. We hope that you'll join us again in the future as we continue to post teaching from Chad Bird.